Oh, it's got it so English. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> very loud applause. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. What a lovely, lovely honor. Um, so just, should we jump straight into Q&A then? Let's jump in. Okay, so um, my first question is that in recent years, I think it would be fair to say that you focused on a number of smaller, more independent projects. Mm -hmm. um, how have these projects differed from your previous experience in TV? Um, well, I, I'd say the biggest difference is probably oversight and the fact that when you work on a smaller project, you have the opportunity to really have more autonomy with all the other artists that you're working with, which is fantastic. Whereas you're not, on television, a lot of what happens on television is based on, on fear of people losing their jobs. So like when you're on a movie set, an independent movie set, everybody's there and everybody knows exactly what they're supposed to do. But when you work in television or in big studio movies, very often I'll, I'll walk in a room and I'll be like, there's like 400 people here and like 80 of these people are doing a job. And the other people, what they do is they cause problems so they have a job <laughs> to fix the problem. And it's like, I don't know, now it's all screwed up. I guess I'll have to fix it. And the, but, but they're the one, like, let's put out the fire. And they're the one that set the fire. <laughs> but when you make a small film, a small independent film, time, time is money. And so you have, there's no way around it. You 100% have to get everything done every day. So, so that autonomy, um, necessity is the mother of invention, right? So what happens, what ends up happening is you end up in a situation where people go, hey, I, I have a crazy idea. Why don't we rehearse the movie before we start shooting it? You know, like, oh, no, that, that, I can't imagine that. And I, I've had opportunities to do that, which has been wonderful, where you get to rehearse for two and a half weeks, and by the time you get to shooting the movie, you do one or two takes and you move on. Whereas, and you don't have a room, an, arm, a, a, an army of people sitting in a tent going, could, you just, could you just get one more where like, he's smiling more and make sure that he has this Coca-Cola in his hand and make sure, you know, it's like everybody, everybody has a vested interest uh, in making it harder than it needs to be. And with independent film, your vested interest better be doing everything as efficiently and as streamlined as you possibly can so you can actually get your movie made. Yeah. So and so, yeah. Um, so, although it's, I guess it's more efficient that way, um, how do you think that the kind of lower budget productions can still achieve success without the big name actors? Three things. Story. Story. <laughs> and story. Because uh, if you look at my partner's film, have you all seen Get Out? Okay. The, 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 only, the only big name, or close to big name in the film, is the, is the, is the creator, is Jordan. The, the, the story is so novel, and so fresh, and so immediate, and so vibrant, and so important, that doesn't, it, it, it doesn't matter who the actors are. As long as they're talented and they have some way of elevating the material, you're in good shape. So, so the independent film, the independent film, has its place, but I think we're getting, we're getting to a spot now where hopefully the big budget film and the independent film are gonna start coalescing because if, if, if the studios, if some of these people, these 480 people can get out of the way and allow an artist to tell a captivating story, they'll take your hundred million dollars. Just let them tell their story. And then, and then you don't need to worry about big names. 
what, what's important is what the characters are going through and how you can make it interest and how you can make what they're going through interesting and relevant. That's all that really matters. You don't need Denzel Washington to do it. Now Denzel might be the right person to do it, but also Joe Schlobotnik might be the right person to do it. And, and, and as, as long as the story is resonating with us in some personal way, that's what will pull us through from the first frame to the end of, to the, end of the film. Cinema is storytelling. That's what it is. It, it should always be that. And everything you do should be serving the story. Okay. Yeah. So moving on to kind of a slightly different question. Um, in recent years, especially with the rise of social media, we've seen increased pressure to be politically correct. Um, and as a comedian yourself, what do you make of this? You know, it, it, it's interesting. That I, 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 I was, I'm not quite sure I even completely understand the question because I feel like if anything, if I'm noticing anything on social media, it's people being not politically, politically correct. It's the fact that people can hide behind the anonymity that social media provides for them, which is, uh, uh, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, it's disgusting because there's no discourse. I know that here what you guys do a lot of is debating. When you debate another person, you're looking them in the face. Uh, there's, no, there's no chance for healthy, respectful debate if a person can hide themselves behind, behind social media and just troll and troll and troll and troll. What I think is there's nothing, there's nothing politically incorrect about trying to achieve, in, in acting, in storytelling and acting, the biggest thing is that one is always trying to achieve something. Someone's always trying to achieve something and one is always trying to make connection with another person. Um, and I think that no matter what the subject matter is, you can do that in a, in, in a respectful way. I, I think there's a difference between surprising people and shocking people. And a lot of people think, if I don't know what else to do, I'll just shock and that will make my work important. It doesn't make it important, it just makes it shocking. If you're doing something surprising to say, oh, I'd like people to see the world maybe this way, or I'll go from this point of view as opposed to this point of view. We've seen enough movies from this point of view, let's see a movie from this point of view. Let's, let's, let's follow her. Like in, 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 our, in our country, I just think they should be able to make, they should just make 10 movies that are all from the point of view of African-American women. African-American women. What is, what, what are, how do African-American women see their role in the world, their role as mothers, their role as business owners? See, even me, even me, as I'm saying the words, I say, African-American woman, business owner. And then, that shouldn't sound weird. That shouldn't sound weird to me, but it does. Shame on us. That shouldn't sound weird. If you don't know the Malcolm Gladwell book, Blink, talks about that a racist uh, in, in, inclination happens like that. You, you, you say a certain word and a certain thing comes up. And so I think, I think that we should try to redefine the term politically incorrect. What's, what's, what's politically correct is to be able to mention something from a new angle. That's what should be politically correct or incorrect. If someone goes, oh, that, you should be welcoming the things that make you blanch. You should be welcoming the things that make you uncomfortable because the things that make you uncomfortable are the things that allow you to grow. The things that make you uncomfortable are the things that make you expand and change. But we don't. What we do is we end up, social media builds these echo chambers and that's dangerous. That's what's dangerous. A person should be able to be politically incorrect and another person should be able to take it in, 
breathe it through and go, huh, I guess I kind of see the angle you're coming from, if that makes any sense. So I think it's our, it's a, comedy's a platform. I use the term all the time, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, very English term, right? Um, uh, and, and, and because, because comedy allows you to kind of open up a little bit, uh, as Jordan would say, if you giggle at something that seems a little off color, you're busted, because you laughed. So now we can open up a dialogue. Now maybe we can sit back and look at, look at a situation from a new angle. Yeah, so kind of turn it on its head. Yes, you've got to turn it on its head. You've got to turn it on its head. Okay, um, so kind of you just mentioned the lack of African-American women in film. Um, and kind of speaking of race, you're particularly known for your rejection of any single racial or comedic stereotype. Um, do you think that the industry can do more in this area um, and Hollywood more broadly as well? Always, every day. They should be doing it, well, they won't be doing it today. Today's President's Day. So everybody's, nobody's working in the States today. But, um, um, uh, but yes, we should do more of it. We should, I mean, it should be happening all the time. The, the, the thing is that it, it, there's this weird cycle and I'm, I don't have all the answers, certainly, as how to pick, how to fix it. But the issue is that if you don't give someone a chance, then they can't, then they can't prove themselves. It's really frustrating. <laughs> it's, like, it's like this guy's got, is given a chance, or, the, or even worse, even more pervasive, is when someone's given the benefit of the doubt. Well, most writers' rooms for comedy shows are made up of, of uh, white, middle-class males who are Protestant. So they know how to do the job, so then you just hire more of them because they know how to do the job. But they don't always know how to do the job. And, and the thing is, don't you want, to, I mean, listen, I, who wants one flavor? I don't want one flavor of soda. I want a whole bunch of different flavors of soda. And, and, and sometimes I even want to mix the flavors up, if we can, you know? Uh, you know? Who knows? So, so but, but the issue is, um, we're making some headway, finally. There's a film that came out in the States recently called Mudbound, and um, Dee Reese, who's an African-American woman, directed it, and every single one of her department heads, the production designer, the woman who wrote the score and all of the music, the gaffer, the, the, the cinematographer, everybody was, a per, was either a person of color or a woman. And so, so it's, we, some of us have to be pioneers because that's the only way it's gonna work. You just have to give someone a chance and, and, then, and then pray that they're going to take that opportunity and do the most they can possibly do with it. We have to keep doing it because some people, we're a mosaic especially our nation, is a big mosaic. And so the thing is, I don't know how to solve this problem. If there was just somebody else who solved the problem in a different way, maybe they could solve it. Oh, in, my, in our household, we do this. So I would solve that problem this way. Y you know, why wouldn't you want more, more input? Why wouldn't you want different input? And so, 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 so I, it's, it's, it's not only do I see it happening, it's crucial that it happens. It's crucial that it happens. But I guess, do you think that there's, in some sense, kind of what's going on means that people of colour who are maybe hoping to go into acting careers or comedy get put off going into those careers because of what they see in the industry? I think sometimes, yeah. I, I think so. I mean, th thank God for the advent of these little supercomputers in our pockets that have cameras on them because anybody can make a film about their story at any time they feel, they feel, they feel fit to do it. So we have that. The, the other side of that coin is that there's, there's massive amounts of material that are out there, and so some of it's really bad. 
So sometimes there are white people making really bad material and there are black people making really bad material. So the thing is, and then, and then what happens is the powers that be will selectively pick. Well, see, black people can't do it. See, it's right there. That's, no, you, you pick the six bad things and then this really brilliant movie over here, you didn't even, you didn't even look at that movie. You, you know, the, that's the issue is that we have to keep cranking out products <laughs> in a way so that the, 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 good, the good ones start dropping in too. So that, so, that, so that the benefit of the doubt is being given to talented people, not just, uh, not just whoever fits the bill. Yeah. If that makes sense. What do you think can be done to, I guess, encourage um, young people who are hoping to go into acting, people of color, to um, you know, try get, get those roles? What, what, what I would say is, if you're a person of, if you're, if you're anybody, but if, if you're a person of color, find a network of people who who, that you, who you can work with. This is the way I came up in, in, in the business for myself, is that I belong to, to groups. So first groups that you're gonna find are usually gonna be in a university. You're gonna find people that are like-minded, who wanna make uh, products the same way you wanna make the product, and uh, see the world comedically the way you see it, see the world dramatically the way you see it, and so you work with those people. And then when I got older I went, there's a, a comedy theater in the States, the United States called The Second City, and the Second City is where um, pretty much everybody from SNL, or, uh, from SNL started. Um, Gilda Radner, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Tina Fey, Steve Carell, Steve Colbert, me. You go on and on and on. And, and, and you find a group of people there. And I started improvising with those people. Once you find a group, you just have to start making material. You just, I, just, I find that there's strength in numbers. So when you're with other people who are like-minded, and you want to make something, then as a group you start studying. Um, how do, why does comedy work? Why does this happen this way? But you need to find others. You need to find others who are willing to go on a journey with you. And that's to me the best way to do it. Um, somebody else will sit in this seat sometime and tell you the best way to do it is just to hunker down at your computer and write and be by yourself. Jordan would tell you that, might tell you that. We're very different people in that way. But, but for me, it's, it's strength in numbers, strength in numbers. And then tell, tell your story. The scary thing is that you're afraid to tell yours. You're going, but my story's so, so narrow. But, but it's not. Generality is the enemy of all art. Specificity is what makes us, is what activates us. So sometimes if I'm an, if I'm an African-American woman and I have an experience, it may be similar to an experience that a Filipino man is having, or a, a small Indian girl, or uh, an Inuit uh, 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 woman over here, you know, it, it, because there's really only seven stories. We just have to tell them in new, exciting ways. It's, guys, it's seven. There's like seven. <laughs> there's like seven stories. And then people go, well, actually, there's 49 subplots of the plots. Great. Seven. Okay. I don't know a lot of math. I know seven times seven is 49. Okay. So, so, but you can tell that those seven stories with your flair and your friend's flair. Oh, what about this? Or, oh, you know, oh, we do it like that. Oh, we actually make food like this. Oh, we would never do that. Oh, man, no, see, that, we would just burn down the house for the insurance or whatever, you know, or whatever, whatever somebody's going to, you know, so that, so that, that, that tapestry is telling an, an old story in a brand new way. Okay. Um, so moving on to talk a bit um, about politics. Um, your <laughs> Sorry, um, your skit as President Obama's angry translator propelled you to further stardom. 
um, and many people praised your ability to use humour to highlight racial tensions. Do you think that humour is an effective tool um, in doing this, or do you think there might also be a danger in satirising a political landscape? No, I don't think there's any danger in satirising the political landscape. I think, I think it's, it's, it's necessary, um, as long as, again, as long as, again, you're not, you're not being... It's not that you're abusing anything. You don't want to be abusive. I think what happens is people, people who work in our business, what happens is we start to learn something early on, which is that cruelty and making fun or punching down, victimizing is not funny. It, 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 it's, it's not helpful. It's cruel. Punching up is helpful. And, and, and what's interesting is people say, yeah, but I just hate that person and, and I'm gonna be mean to that person. Mean isn't funny. It was when we were three. And what happens is, and it, and it was only funny to you. <laughs> it wasn't funny to the person you were being mean to. But what happens is, as, you, as we grow, we get arrested in our development and we stay there. And we stay there going, look at his nose! Like 50-year-olds, like 50-year-olds going, because she's stupid and ugly. <laughs> But a, but a comedian can't do that. A comedian can't do that. A comedian has to grow and evolve. They have to. So we have to. So, and what I've learned a lot in comedy, especially in political sat satire, is problem solving. So in our, I'll give you an example. In our show in Key and Peele, there was a sketch after, after the Trayvon Martin incident in the States. You guys know about Trayvon Martin? And so Trayvon Martin was killed, and you know, a kid, a kid came in our gated community in a hoodie on, and, and then the, and George Zimmerman shot him, okay, or killed him. So, Jordan wrote this little piece, like a minute long piece, called um, uh, where he's walking down the street and a security guard is following him and he's an African American and, a, and he's got a hoodie on and he's walking through this neighborhood and all of a sudden he feels really, really compromised and scared and vulnerable and the, this car is pulling up next to him and he's pulling up next to him and he's pulling up next to him and you're like, oh no, he's gonna, the, the guy in the car is white and he's racist and he's gonna know that, and Jordan takes his hood and he pulls his hood up and there's a profile of a white kid's face <laughs> on the side of the hood, and the cop drives by, the cop drives by, and he goes, oh, God. <laughs> So the reason you're laughing is because of the problem-solving aspect of it, right? It's not like, you fat fucking cracker! <laughs> solves nothing, solves nothing. Screaming fat fucking cracker solves nothing. We all know he's a fat fucking cracker. We, we, that part's established. One plus one is two. The sun comes up during the day. You know, we see who that guy is. We understand why Jordan's writing the piece. The, what's clever, what, what made people, it, it, the one thing a comedian loves is when they hear laughter and then applause. Applause means you thought it was clever. And the mo most things that you find clever are when people solve a problem in a way you've never seen before. That's what you're laughing at. That's clever comedy. That's, that is a way to uplift and help solve problems politically. Look, I don't, not a big fan of our president. I'm not a big fan. Please, yeah, go ahead and clap, clap. I don't, I, I don't know what I can do to help edify him or edify the faction that voted for him, but I do understand that they felt disenfranchised. I do understand that they're scared. 
And it's hard, it's hard. I don't know how to work with this situation. It's, yes, they're racist, but they're racist because they're scared. They're scared. But I can't write that in a tweet, because you write that in a tweet and then 70,000 people attack you. I'm like, I'm just talking about humans. Humans are scared. We're scared of things we don't know and understand. They're scared, and they wanted to be heard. So they voted for that idiot because they just knew that he didn't know anything about politics, we're gonna vote for him. They didn't, you know what I mean? So the, I don't, and it's hard, we don't know how to satirize this guy. He, he has gone from the ridiculous to the sublime and back to the ridiculous. It's, you can't satirize him. It's, so, it's, it's, it's insane. Every morning with the Facebook, you're going, he did not say that. How is that? No, that's, no, that's him. That's him. <laughs> yeah, it's right there. There's the check mark, verified, Donald J. Trump. He doesn't, it, it's, we get, and this is all across the world, we get the leaders we deserve. This is the person that's in power in the United States right now. We don't agree, but some of us weren't watching hard enough, some of us weren't diligent enough, some of us were more passionate, some of us were less passionate, some of us were apathetic, some of us were outraged. And at this particular moment in the history of the earth, we got the leader we deserve. So now we need to pick ourselves up from our, by our bootstraps and be better. We need to be better. We need to be better. Americans need to be better. We can't, I don't see us fixing him. So we need to fix ourselves. And one of the platforms to do that through is comedy. As I said before, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. If you laugh, you're busted. If you laugh, you open up. Can we have a dialogue? I, I, one of the proudest moments of my life was when one of the guys on our crew at Key and Peel um, told me, a, a, clearly a conservative guy, and he told me, he said, I went home for Thanksgiving, I showed my aunt and my uncle the Anchor Translator videos. And my aunt and my uncle, staunch Republicans, they said, they said, oh man, that's, that's good. That's, I, I, I. They said this, they said, I'm sure that's how he feels. They said, I'm sure that's how Obama feels. They didn't vote for him and they would never vote for him, but they saw how he felt. They saw what his dilemma was and how Jordan and I problem solved that dilemma. They said, it was clever. We enjoyed it. I, I wish I had an anger translator. Do you know what I mean? That's how you gotta bridge it. Let's solve a human problem. I don't care if you're conservative or liberal, humans have the same problems. We, we, we wanna be accepted, we wanna feel love, we wanna belong. That's, everybody wants that. Everybody wants that. So let's write our comedy toward that. I guess in terms of making comedy about Trump's tweets, do you not think there's some form of danger maybe in that people then see the tweets themselves as a bit of a joke and don't take it as a serious threat? Yeah, I do. That's, that's an interesting point. I do see that as a, as, as a bit of an issue where, um, you know, you, you have a lot of leaders in, in our country who are just always just like, guys, we can't normalize it. We can't normalize it. We can't normalize it. And then we keep normalizing it. And then he does something even more outrageous and then we keep normalizing it. Yes, it's, it's because no one's stopping him. Before you know it, we've got a war. And, and then there'll be a war. And th that's the other issue with, I don't know, it's just in the States, I think humans. The other issue is that we wait for crises. We don't do preventative shit, man. We wait for crises. And then we act. Like, you know what I mean? 
It's like, it, it, it's like, we should probably fix this dam. We should probably fix this dam, guys. It's okay, it's just a leak. We should probably fix the dam. And then they finally, what they do is they, they either mug, kill, or put that guy in jail. The guy who says, let's fix the dam, he goes to jail. Then the dam breaks. <laughs> and everyone's like, the dam broke! Oh my, we gotta fix the dam! But no one gives him credit. He's just, he just drowns with everybody else. You, you, you know, if we could do more preventative stuff, it'd be helpful. And I'm trying through our work to find a way to make a dialogue and maybe the dialogue makes it more preventative. Um, do you think that the TV and film industry are changing, kind of both with the anger over the lack of racial representation at um, the Oscars and with the Me Too movement? Or do you think that these are short-term campaigns that will be forgotten about? They're not short-term complaints. And what I mean by that is we're on a continuum. This is just this, is just this time it's happened. It's just gonna keep happening. We have to, it's systemic, right? So again, we have to treat the disease and not the symptom. And what we're doing is we're treating the symptom. That's the problem, is that power, abuse of power has been happening since the snake said, eat that apple. Um, it's just, it, 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 so it's not gonna go away. It may transform and, and, and me too might turn into us too in three weeks or, or um, Applejack, drop the smack. I don't know what it's gonna be. I don't know what the words are gonna be, but it's not gonna go away until people are willing to share. You have to understand that your candle doesn't diminish if you light somebody else's candle. But for some reason, people don't, people, a lot of people in power don't want to accept that as a reality, like as a universal reality. You can help others, and you'll only get dividends back. But, but, they, but someone taught them differently. So it's not only that, but then they take the power and they abuse the power. That's the root of the problem. So no, it won't go away. The anger won't go away. The anger won't go away. So um, it's just that we're not addressing the right thing. How do you think that we can move on to, to address the right thing? Well, I'm gonna, I'll give the cynical answer. Here's the cynical answer. It's actually happening right now to, uh, to the tune of $240 million at the four-day box office for the Black Panther movie. They'll listen if they make money. It's horrible. It's a cynical, cynical answer. But if they make money, they'll listen. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What, what, what just happened? It's a movie with all black people? And it made $240 million in the first weekend? If you give people something that they can identify with, they will slap down their money and go see it. They, that, that's part of it. That's part of it. That, that's the, I'm sorry, it's the, like the worst answer. It's just like, money! But, um, but they, don't, they don't understand. Like, they don't understand. It, 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 you, share this with us and we'll come and see it. Share something that's new and vibrant and hopeful, and we'll, we'll, we'll come, we'll go, we'll go. And just share a little bit of the power and yours won't be diminished. I'm telling, I promise you, I promise you. But so right now, baby steps. Right now what they're listening to is, hey, we did something different and we made some money. Maybe we can keep doing something different. And then we keep some, just keep doing something different so that more people, because there are those, those independent films you talked about in the beginning if we can tell these lovely, unique stories and you give us $100 million to do it, that means that we see those lovely, unique stories take place in 4,000 cinemas 
as opposed to 18 cinemas. That's the thing. What do you think the everyday person can do, what do you think the viewer can do to help sustain the current activist momentum? Well, the, the, the current viewer can, I think the current, I mean the viewer, I guess the viewer is everybody. Yeah. The viewer is everyone. I, I think the big thing is to try to every day take a breath. I don't do this all the time. But if everybody just takes a breath before they talk and try to really hear what the other person is saying, I feel like such a hypocrite saying this. <laughs> but I'm a human, I'm a human. But it's, it's just true. Let's just listen to what the other person has to say. Where are they coming from? Like if we're trying to, let's try to make a connection. Let's try to make a connection and see where you're coming from. Okay, I, I, I think I understand what you're trying to say to me. And then it makes life a little bit easier. The other thing to do is keep supporting that art. It's an illusion, guys. The art appears to be on a narrow path, but it's not. It's not. It's just telling very important primal stories in a new way. That's it. That's it. So when you see, if you have an inkling to go see this kind of movie, because that's the kind of movie you always see, just, just, just go see that one. Go see that one instead. And see, see how that affects you. See how that, that that's what it says. It's, 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 the, it's the earning power, it's the money power. But allow, I'll, I'll expand your horizons a little bit. Yeah. Do you think that the commercial success of films like Black Panther is potentially wrong in some way? At this particular moment, I, do not, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Because the thing, now I've not seen the film yet, but what I've been told about it is that the film is, it's a singular story, it's not completely dependent on the rest of the Marvel universe. And also I hear that, and I don't think this is a spoiler, but from what I've been told, is that it's pretty much kind of a drama with some action scenes in it. That's fantastic. Because then we're just watching stories, human stories, as opposed to just all of the, uh, all the spectacle. And there's room for spectacle. So I, I would say right now, it's exactly what the doctor ordered. It's exactly what the doctor ordered to the point where I'm excited to see it for all of those reasons. Yes, also because there are people that look like me in the movie, but that's one of many reasons I want to see the movie. I, I'm, not interested, I'm not interested in seeing bad entertainment, and I don't care if the people in the movie have melanin in, in their skin or don't. I, I just want to see good entertainment. Just, just cast the best person. Just cast the best person. And then the other answer, of course, is to write things um, uh, write things for particular groups. I'd love to be able to know, oh, okay, so the, I can see, that I'm reading the script now. Oh, oh, only, only an Asian woman can play that role. I get it. Oh, that's good. Only, oh, oh, you know, only a Hispanic man can play that role. Now we're cooking with gas. Look, first of all, just hire the best person. But I put it out to everybody. If you can write a specific story that requires those people to be in it to tell it, bravo. Okay, thank yeah. you. Um, I think now's probably the perfect time to open up some questions from the perfect audience. Um, so if you've got, if you'd like to ask a question, please raise your hand and we'll try to get a microphone over to you. So I see one hand just over there, um, the, yeah, in the red scarf. Thank you so very much for coming. Thank you I for just, having me. I just have this yes, one you, question. You, thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> you, right there in the blue shirt. One of my favorite characters you have ever uh, impersonated is Coach Himes from SNL. Yes. I was always wondering what is the background to 
the conception of this character, if you can give us a bit. Coach Hines is an amalgam. Coach Hines is a character I played on an American television show called Mad TV. Uh, it was based on Mad Magazine. And, um, and, uh, and I, I was very fortunate to be able to do the last six seasons of that show. It ran for 14 years in the States. And uh, Coach Hines was an amalgam of men from my past, from, from my childhood. He was like, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, 15% this coach, 20% this father of the kids I grew up with, 15% of that coach, the mustache was this guy, the short shorts was that guy, and I put them all in a stew and cooked them up, and I, and I, and I, and I made this character. And then the, all the pencil and then, you know, like, if you, if you guys don't shut up, I'm gonna stab you in the neck with a pencil. <laughs> that was the artistic director of my university. <laughs> If one person goes backstage after this show, tell them, Mark, I'm going to go back downstairs. I don't care if it's your Aunt Millie or your grandmother. I'm going to stab him in the neck with a pencil. <laughs> and, so, and so I stole that from him. And, and, and I just smushed these five. It was an amalgam of these five guys. And, and uh, at the Second City Comedy Theater in Chicago, the Improv Theater, I, I introduced the character. And then when I auditioned for Mad TV, I auditioned with that character. And he became one of the more popular characters I did on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, I can see a question just over here. Yes. Yeah. Hi, thank you so much for being here. Um, so I was just wondering, what was it like working with President Obama when you were his anger translator? Um, it was uh, sublime. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Um, he, was, he was so very collected. Uh, you, I, I know you see the persona of Obama. You think of him as being this very collected, kind of calculated intellectual person. He's extremely warm, fantastic sense of humor. Um, he, knew it, he knew his role in that, in that thing. You know, he was just like as straight as he could be. And, and, and the angry, like the furrowed brow, and he's just like, you know, like standing there looking kind of stoic and then I'm losing my mind over here, you know? <laughs> and, 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 I, and we got to rehearse beforehand. I went to the West Wing to rehearse with him. And he's, uh, he's a very tactile guy too. Like he just comes in the room and like, there he is, keep. There's my man, you know, and just runs in there and just hugs you, and then he hugs you, and then you're terrified because he's hugging you, and you're like, I'm not hugging him! Just red dot, red dot on your foot, you know. It's like, tell the Secret Service he's hugging me! I'm, not, I'm too young to die! And he, uh, and we were rehearsing, and he says to me, and so he turns to me, and he's looking through the script and everything, and by the way, I, I learned his lines and my lines, because the guy's got his mind on a couple of things, so I figured maybe just in case he went up on his lines. And so he's looking at his lines and he said, no, no, listen here, no, we can't. <laughs> he goes, he goes, he goes, we uh, can't be uh, breaking up now. We gotta, get, we gotta get all the way through it. And I was like, yes sir, yes sir. And then we start and he says his first line, he said, so I wanted to introduce everybody, uh, my anger translator, uh, Luther. And then I say my first line, which is, hold on to your lily white butts. <laughs> and then he laughs, and then he goes, oh. <laughs> no, 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 you know, you got me laughing, you got me. I said, Mr. President, you're trying, we're trying to get through this thing. I know, I know, I, you got me. So <laughs> it, was, it was just delightful. He, he was absolutely delightful, and, 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 um, and, and it was really great being up there with him. I just felt very secure. Very secure, and, I did, and, I, and, and, and it was one of the few experiences, for one of like top three moments of my life, 
it, it, it was nice to be present. Like I wasn't completely freaking out. I was present, he was there, he had my back. He had my back. Like he had America's back for eight years. <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, it was great. It was really great. It was fantastic. Okay, um, should we go to the question um, just over there? Hi, Hello. I'm researching the linguistics of comedy right now, and I know what the literature says about the language that people use to be funny, but I was wondering, as a comedian, are there any um, styles or ways of speaking that you employ or try to avoid when you're performing to be funny? You know, I, I, try, to find, I try to find what I can, what's best in any, in any, given, situ in any given situation based on the t a text, typically. I, do, I will tell you this, linguistically speaking, syntactically, if you use an urban dialect, and when I say an urban dialect, I mean a dialect that, that, um, that has its, uh, its origins in the South, especially because I'm from the Midwest, and you know what, we had that migration of Southern blacks that moved up to the Midwest during the war. So for some reason, they're saying a line like, you know, I'll have, um, I'll have a, uh, the fried chicken and a side of, um, of biscuits. It's, for some reason, it's nowhere near as funny as saying, I'll have um, some fried chicken and a side of biscuits. <laughs> and I don't know why, and I don't know why, because it's, a, because it's, it's, it's something that's not foreign to my ear. So I, I hear it, but, but, but um, when, when, you can, when you can employ, when I improvise, I often will employ regionalism as soon as I possibly can. And um, because I think what happens is people identify regionalism even if they don't know it, but I don't know what it is about certain diphthongs that that's so funny, uh, it, it, you know, like the, the difference, it, it, like here, if you hear RP, someone speaking RP, it's funny depending on the situation, but a Cockney act dialect is always funnier. It's always funnier. Um, and so you, you, you're, you're writing your paper. It's, it's triff thongs, it's diff thongs, it's triff thongs. It's, it, but I, I don't, it, it's, the, it's having that texture, but there must be something where you could codify it. I just don't, I haven't read all the literature. <laughs> I hope. I hope my ramblings are helpful. <laughs> but, um, but I, I, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, potentially cited in someone's paper now. Say again? <laughs> potentially cited in someone's paper was, now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, should go to the hand just over there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hi, thank you very much. Um, are there any British people here? <laughs> I want to take a question from a Brit. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm more than happy to hear this question. Um, so a uh, common thread that I, I picked up throughout a lot of your comedy shows on Key and Peele or your comedy skits were you being biracial, yes. uh, which is obviously something surprise I can relate to. Um, and one that wondering your stand-up shows I particularly resonated with was uh, you and Jordan referring to a time where, or growing up in different situations, kind of fluctuating on a bit of a spectrum yes. between how black and how white you can be. And obviously you're an actor, so you, you do change and adapt to different situations, but I want to know how, in a personal, professional basis, not on stage, not in front of a camera, have you found as a mixed race person that is something that fluctuates? Do you find yourself having to change or needing to? The, the, the or changing without any control over it? I, I, no, there's, it's always controlled. It's always, it's always thought, I'm always thinking about it. Whether or not I have to do it is not, it, it, typically you don't have to do it. Um, I say typically, there are, there are situations where, like, if I'm, 
I'm trying to say something that, that everybody will understand. Like, if I'm in, I'm from Detroit, Michigan. So I'm in certain parts of my city. It does not behoove me to speak the way I'm speaking right now. <laughs> For the most part, you're okay. But I don't, especially if, I'm, if I were to do a business transaction with somebody, or I was trying to make, put them at ease. But, but if I'm gonna be completely honest with myself, sometimes I think a lot of it has to do with me feeling uncomfortable. I don't feel genuine. I don't feel authentic. So I'll try to make myself feel authentic in their midst. I trick myself into thinking I'm making them more comfortable. They're, like these dudes that grew up down the street from me, they're, they're perfectly comfortable the way they is, man. They don't give a fuck about this nigga over here, I don't give a shit, you know. I don't, you know, I don't, but you know, and then you grow up and they talk about how you talking funny. Because all the people they know, this, that's this, this how these motherfuckers talk, that's how they talk. So it's like, why, why you talk white? And what's so funny, that's the phrase that you'd hear, I'd hear constantly as a child. Why you talk white, man? Why you talk white? That ain't your mama, because my mother's white, right? It's just not part of their experience. It's simply not part of their experience. So they're just having, they're, having, they're, they're negotiating what this, is, what this is and what this means to them. But I never, I don't know that I find it necessary. It's, it's a matter of being, and Jordan and I have both experienced this, that you fluctuate so much that you do start to lose perhaps a bit of the grasp of, of who you are. As opposed to a person who's, um, I don't wanna say marginalized, but a person grows up in a particular demographic, uh, a significant demographic their whole life, they take on that, they never think twice about that being their identity. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Uh, should we go to uh, the front here? Sort of building along the lines of the last question, but through Mad TV and Kim Peel, it's clear you have an incredible range as an actor. I was just wondering how you sort of work on that, if you have a process that you go through. I do, I do. Um, a lot of it has to do, it's going to sound very um, uh, kind of almost robotic in a way, but it's almost like going through a catalog. It's like, okay, so this, okay, this, this is, um, okay, with this character, I re I'll read a text, and I'll take clues from the text, and I go, those clues seem to fit Keegan number 26. And, and, and then you read a different text and go, okay, there's all these clues, that's Keegan 104. Or if it's like an absurdist piece, that's Keegan Pi. And, <laughs> and, and so, so, so it's, it's, I collect, I have my antenna up all the time, and I'm always trying to collect behavior from other people. Like I used to say to friends of mine, if, you're, like I was on the, if I'm on the bus or the subway, and you'd sit there and, and someone next to me is like, look at, this, look, look at my man over here. And they're making fun of somebody and I'm just like, you, go ahead, feel free, make fun. That dude's gonna win me a Tony. <laughs> that guy right there, that crazy person right there is gonna win me a Tony. You go ahead and make fun of him. I'm writing down, I'm writing down this part. <laughs> this is, this is, oh, I'm, so, oh, I'm sorry, it's his right eye, it's his right eye. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's collecting behaviors from other people and, and um, and then, and then making, as I said before, amalgams of the behavior. So I'm gonna give that guy, that guy's gonna have this dialect with that limp and, and that uh, stutter, you know what I mean? Like, you, you start to kind of catalog those things. Then it starts happening kind of organically. As you're reading a text, you start building the character as you're reading the text and building the character as you're reading the text. So that, that's, that, that's mostly how I do it. And then for more internal work, because every character wants something, they always want something, so what I'm usually doing is, I had a professor used to say it's the Hotel Overlook. That's the hotel that Jack Nicholson took care of in The Shining. It's the Hotel Overlook, you know, 
all these creepy stuff's happening in all these rooms, is that it's a private inside job where you open these doors to yourself and go, where is the version of me that in real life is that despicable? Or where's the version of me inside of myself that's that heroic? And, and, can, I and then can I tap into that? Can I tap into that and, and do this? Um, I don't know if you know the filmmaker Stephen Chow. He's a Chinese filmmaker, makes really cool films. I made a, film, a movie I love called Kung Fu Hustle. And, and uh, uh, Kung Fu Hustle, Shaolin Soccer, and um, King of Comedy are these three movies that he made. He's really terrific. And he made these movies, and I remember he said, all I do is, I'm a, he said, I'm a coward in real life. So I just uh, find the hero of myself inside and I just put him in the movies. So I would never stop a woman from getting her purse stolen on the street, but my character would. <laughs> so he writes a character that would do it. And so you, you try to find those little doors to open. Yeah. Okay. Somebody back there. How about somebody yeah. back there? Um, how about we go to the hand right at the back then? Um, yeah. The guy who just turned his head around looking for somebody else <laughs> behind him, that guy. Um, what's the strangest or most like, bizarre reaction you've had to some of your more controversial work? The most strange reaction I've had to, to what? Your more controversial work. What's the strangest reaction I've had to our more controversial work? Usually, usually what it is, and I enjoy this, is when you walk down the street and someone sees you and just goes, y'all sick, man, y'all sick. Something wrong with you two, something wrong with you two. I don't know about you, man. And it's not, it's not even a piece in particular. It's just my overall oeuvre. <laughs> this motherfucking crazy right here, man. Something wrong with your ass. It's just, but, um, which I just adore. I love that when that happens. Because it happens almost every day on the streets of New York. You just walk down the streets and you're like, there he is! <laughs> the fucking guy's nuts! You know? Um, <laughs> I would say, um, I think so, uh, one of the strangest reactions, Jordan was working, uh, Jordan and I uh, play these two characters named Mike and Van Davion. And they're these two guys that exist on the internet and they would criticize Key and Peele. So they were like trolls for Key and Peele. They would, and they would get very upset that the Key and Peele team wouldn't hire them as writers on the show. And they would say the most puerile, sophomoric stuff, which was my favorite part, which would be like, you know, y'all scenes don't make no sense at all, man. What you should do is have the one dude, like, he should like poop, <laughs> and he should pick it up, and he should smell it, and that's to make him fart. <laughs> And, like, and they, they think that's comedy because they're those guys that are arrested, like they're arrested in their, in their development. And, and there was a guy that was working with Jordan that was gonna make these two characters, uh, 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 we were gonna do a cartoon of these two characters. And, and his, his reaction that, that kind of, he couldn't get his head wrapped around is that he said, I don't understand how y'all, he said, I don't understand how y'all crossed over first. Meaning, in the States, meaning, how did you appeal to a mainstream audience first and then to black people? And I think that was maybe one of the strangest, strangest kind of requests that we have, because we don't really have an answer for it other than the first, th first things first, is it funny? Let's use all of our comedic training to figure out how to make a good sketch that's funny and progressive and makes the laughs bigger and enhances itself. That, and then we're black, then we're black after that. And so I think that was that. That and the fact that, uh, and then today, there was a woman at Harrods today in London 
who just, this happens every night, people get nervous and they just go, I thought she was American. And she was like, I thought you were a lot taller and real, ooh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, no. And then she went, and then you have, like you got them evil eyes and you be like, this. And, I'm, and I, I must have looked extremely confused. I was just like, the evil eyes. You know, like you got, when you have the eyes, Never mind, I'm, not, I'm, not I'm just gonna go buy an uh, umbrella. So, you know, but, so it's, but that guy, that guy was, that was the one that I thought was very in, an interesting thing is he wanted to understand, he wanted us to kind of explain to him, how did you do that? How did you do that? I think we've maybe got time for one more question. Um, so if we go to the hand over there. Um, With yeah. the, green, the green? The green jumper, yeah. You, yeah, who turned her head? One or two. That's my new technique. They always turn I point head. right beyond them, make them turn their head, and then you call on them. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, my question would be, um, in Keen Peel, um, you and Jordan often use um, stereotypes in order to create humor, but usually in a harmless or an uninsulting way. My question would just would be, do you have any rules or do you have any conscious thought when you're writing uh, stereotype-based humor? Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's a couple, there was a couple of rules that we established. One of them was uh, what we call, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a real fun phrase that Joyden, uh, Joyden, Joyden, um, <laughs> Jordan coined, which was comedic judo, like you'd say comedic judo. We were trying to figure out, and then he, I thought it was a really great term, which, which meant let, let's trick the audience into thinking they know where it's going, and then we'll pull the rug out from under them. So a good example is uh, the, the sketch called Movie Critics, where, where you go, we wanted the viewer to go, man, this, how many times have I seen a scene about two black guys talking in the movie theater? Um, we want the audience to think they're on step G, and then we're like, oh no, we're not even going in that direction. We're not even going, we, we, we even, we're not even on the alphabet. We're talking about one, two, three over here, right? <laughs> So th that's one, is, is give them an expectation and then subvert the expectation. So right, the two guys were talking about mise-en-scene and you know, man, this is ridiculous, man. I've never seen Godard or Kubrick do something like this. I mean, there's, no even, there's not even any visual language, you know, that, that they were actual film credits, you know. <laughs> and then the white guy, the white guy is the one who's talking during the movie and then the black guys go and talk to the usher like, this dude right over here is talking. I'm, I'm trying to enjoy the cinema and he's on, you know. So that's, that's one rule. The other one, as I, I had mentioned much earlier, is, is punching up. Punching down on a victim is not, is not as helpful. Um, and the, so, so, but that, that subverting, or what we call a hard turn or a zag, is trying to figure out what is the ingredient of a zag. The ingredient is setting up an expectation. It looks like everything's going this direction and then, and then turning it. And Jordan and I learned that in our improv training which we used to play a game called freeze tag. Where, you know, you guys know freeze tag, this game? Where you know, people, they're in a physical position on stage and then someone says freeze and comes out and they tag them out and they come in and they take the same exact position but start a different, start a different, um, a different um, uh, scene. So if I'm holding a shovel in this scene and I tag out, the other person's holding a, you know, a fishing line. So that, so that you don't, you're subverting what it was a, a second ago, and that was part of our training. So that's part of where that comes from. Then the other one is, 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 is using very specific experiences of your life. So Jordan and I, I don't know if this is a term that you guys use here, but um, 
we are, uh, we're commonly known in the States, in, in, in African-American circles, we're known as blurds, B-L-E-R-D, blurds, black nerds. Donald Glover, Donald Glover is a blurred, right? And so, so we were writing scenes from a blurred point of view. And, it, and part of what we were doing was trying to say to the world, there is no black monolith. There, there, there's so many different pieces and facets of this mosaic known as the African-American experience. And, and, and what fed that, part of what fed that is this country. I was raised, I was partially raised by a person from the UK. So my stepmother, when I would watch TV, I, I live very close to Canada. So I used to watch the CBC when I was a kid and Lenny Henry, the Lenny Henry show was on the CBC. If you're, if you're just a kid from Detroit, you're like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 I'm sorry, wait a minute, wait a minute. That black guy has an English accent. Because <laughs> it, it makes perfect sense to you guys, but to us it doesn't make sense. No, but, but he's black, he can't have an English accent. Why can't there be black people in England? So at a very young age, I started to learn that, subvers that subverting, which is like, oh, so black people can have English accents. Yes, so can Filipino people and Spanish people. It, you can live, you're gonna sound where you live. Oh, you're gonna sound like where you live. Oh, because that wasn't in the movies, right? So it's, it's all about these different types of, of subverting. And, and the last example I'll give is, is, is in, the, in the blurred category, is the, um, the very first thing we ever did, that we ever did, was, was from my real life, was from my real life. It's the sketch where I'm standing on the corner talking to my wife about getting theater tickets. And I'm talking like this. And I see Jordan come out of room. So I make an assumption based on how he's dressed, what kind of African American he is. So the second he comes into my sphere, I start talking like this immediately. Like immediately like this. And then he's talking just the same way I'm talking, man. We both on the phone talking to two different people. And it's like, whatever, man. And then Jordan gets up and he's leaving that situation. And as he walks away, he goes, oh my God, Christian, I almost just got mugged. <laughs> so, because, right? Right? Because you're expecting, you're expecting him to go, yeah, man, no, I'm right there, man. Well, pull the fucking car up, nigga. We're going to get in the car right now and go. You think that's what's going to happen, and he changes it. And, and Jordan, being as brilliant as he is, it's not, he went one step past me. So I'm just me, so he went one step, and then he was gay, you know, it, so, which we call heightening. And so people go, why is Key and Peele so funny? It's not, there's like 75 people at the Second City in, in, in Chicago right now who can do what Jordan and I do. I don't know if they can do exactly the same thing, but they have the same training. And so that's what I'm sharing with you now. It's that, it's that training. So um, subversion, subverting the expectation. Comedic judo. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this evening. Um, what? But if, <laughs> uh, but if you could all please join me in saying a huge thank you to Keegan Michael.